the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Can't believe it's already the 30th of May. It'll be June next week. Wow, time sure flies. Seven minutes after four o'clock is the time. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. I am so looking forward to sharing a conversation with Amy Wolf. She is uh, quite a remarkable young woman. She's a mom. And uh, she was moved with compassion and concern about an incident she learned about in her community and decided to do something. In fact, she was a little uh, reluctant to imagine that what she thought about might have any impact at all. But the rest of the story is quite remarkable. And we'll talk with Amy later in the five o'clock hour about the Lawn Signs of Hope Project and Don't Give Up movement. That's coming up in our second hour. Taking a look at some of today's headlines as Robert Mueller bows out, or at least he'd like to. More Democrats are calling for the uh, president's impeachment. If Robert Mueller thought his only public remarks since being appointed special counsel would put the Russian collusion allegations, a Democrat's call to impeach the president to rest, he was mistaken. I'm not sure he thought both of those things, but at least he thought perhaps he could gracefully step away from it all. If anything, Mueller's statement on Wednesday may have assured that the debate over whether to impeach the president will be a dominant issue heading into the 2020 presidential election. Well, speaking from the Justice Department, Mueller announced the closing of his office and told reporters he didn't plan to testify before Congress. Of course, most people don't plan on it. He explained that his uh, team did not have the option to charge President Trump with a crime, citing longstanding Justice Department policy that a sitting president cannot be indicted. However, Mueller also stressed that there was not sufficient evidence to charge a conspiracy with regard to whether members of the Trump campaign coordinated with the Russian government during the 2016 presidential election. Well, what precisely did he mean by that? One would have hoped that his comments would clear up some unanswered questions or some confusion, but to the contrary, did just the opposite. On the question of obstruction, Mueller said, if we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said that. We did not determine whether the president did commit a crime. Prominent Democrats seized on his words to call for Trump's impeachment. House Judiciary Chairman Gerald Nadler said that all the options were on the table and that it was up to Congress to hold Trump accountable for any alleged crimes. 2020 Democratic presidential candidates such as Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, Senator Cory Booker and Senator Kamala Harris, Representative Seth Moulton and Beto O'Rourke all called for the impeachment proceedings to begin. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi walked a very fine line on Wednesday as um, as she tried to assure party colleagues that lawmakers in the House will continue looking into impeaching President Trump while advocating against rashness. Pelosi, um, speaking hours after Mueller's statement, praised his work but promised to continue investigating Trump. The House Speaker has maintained that Democrats should not begin impeachment proceedings against Trump but has faced increasing pressure from members in her caucus to reverse course. Fellow Democrats have accused Pelosi of holding off on impeachment for political reasons. Well, one has also made uh, accusation that moving forward would be done so for political reasons. So I suppose with politicians, I pretty much 
is a summary of much of what they do. Well, a mystery continues to surround a reported U.S. military email that called for the USS John S. McCain to be out of sight during President Trump's recent trip to uh, U.S. troops stationed in Japan, where the ship was docked. On Wednesday, both President Trump and Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan denied any knowledge of the order, which led to the ship's name first being covered with a tarp and then being obscured by a paint barge prior to the president's visit over Memorial Day weekend. The Wall Street Journal that reported the story directly contradicts Shanahan. The journal cites an unnamed U.S. official as saying that Shanahan was aware and approved measures to ensure the ship did not interfere with the president's trip. The ship is named for the father and grandfather of the late U.S. Senator John S. McCain III, with whom Trump had feuded prior to the Arizona Republican uh, Republican's death from cancer uh, last year at age 81, and has continued long after his um, body has been interred. Well, the uh, journal feature apparently infuriated Megan McCain, daughter of the late senator, who tweeted in part the following, Trump is a child who will always be deeply threatened by the greatness of my dad's incredible life. Trump won't let him rest in peace, so I have to stand up for him. President Trump has said that he had no knowledge of uh, what happened, but that perhaps some staffer had taken it upon him or herself to try to um, anticipate what the president might have preferred. A legal dispute unfolded this week between private contractors who have built a half-mile fence between a new, a new Mexico City and Mexico, and the mayor of that city who was arguing that the fence didn't get proper authorization. We Build the Wall, the name of the organization, began construction of the border fence on private land in Sunland Park, New Mexico, last Friday using money raised through crowdfunding. The Dallas Morning News reported the city shares a border with El Paso, Texas, and Mexico. The company had planned to finish construction by, well, tomorrow. But Sunland Park's mayor, Javier Perse, he said Tuesday that the 18-foot fence surpasses the city's maximum height of six feet. On Wednesday, he issued a cease and desist order. And uh, we build the wall, ceased and desisted. Meanwhile, CNN anchor, uh, anchor rather Chris Cuomo responded to several critics who slammed him on Wednesday over a tweet they said appeared to mock a National Rifle Association member and rape su- uh, survivor. Kimberly Corbin appeared in an NRA ad advocating her Second Amendment right after doing after going into detail about how she survived a rape when she was 20 years old. I'm a mother of two, and if a predator or anyone else tries to harm me or my family, they have to come through my firearm first. Corbin said Cuomo reacted to the ad tweeting, only in America. So apparently only a mother of two in America would want to protect uh, her children from a predator or anyone else would try to harm the family. Hmm. Wednesday night in Texas versus U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, a federal district court in Texas held that Obama administration violated the Administrative Procedure Act when it adopted a revised definition of waters of the United States in 2015 and remanded the so-called waters of the United States rule back to the federal agencies from whence it came. And Thad Cochran, a Mississippi Republican who brought Southern gentility to Washington and Washington largesse to the South over nearly four decades in the U.S. Senate, where he was a past chairman of the powerful Appropriations Committee, died today in Oxford, Mississippi. He was 81. 
The Louisiana House of Representatives passed an abortion ban on a 79 to 23 vote to, on Wednesday, rather, that would prohibit women from terminating a pregnancy once a fetal heartbeat has been detected. The governor, John Bell Edwards, uh, indicated earlier that he will break with his party and sign the ban if it crosses his desk. It has now crossed his desk, and by all accounts, he has signed it into law. Meanwhile, Netflix chief content officer Ted um, Sarandos vowed to rethink the company's investment in Georgia if that state's recently passed ban on abortions past the point where a fetal heartbeat can be detected is not ultimately struck down by the courts. National Review's uh, reports Uh, Similarly, according to Reuters, Walt Disney um, chief uh, operating officer Bob Iger said that it would be very difficult for the media company to keep filming in Georgia if a new abortion law takes effect because many people will not want to work in the U.S. state. Georgia, on its part, says we will not be forced to conform to Hollywood standards of morality, and they seem to be standing firm. We'll see what happens over time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Again, later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Amy Wolf. She's a young woman who was simply struck by a statistic in her community. Her response has now traveled all around the world. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Maine banned what's um, been coined the phrase gay conversion therapy for minors on Wednesday, joining more than a dozen other states that have outlawed the controversial practice. Now, the practice is controversial because in many interpretations of it, it's a deliberate misnomer of what happens in talk therapy where individuals seek the counsel of others um, in order to address unwanted same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. But nonetheless, Maine has now joined a list of others um, that will ban that possibility for uh, any minor. Meanwhile, Pope Francis has washed his hands. After nearly a year-long silence, the Pope has officially addressed allegations that he knew about the sexually abusive Cardinal Theodore McCarrick and lifted sanctions that were imposed on him by Pope Benedict. I have said it many times, he said, I knew nothing, no idea. So there you have it. The Pope has addressed it directly, saying he had no knowledge of uh, those accusations. And exactly one month after the 21st Knesset was sworn in, a majority of the Knesset voted um, late Wednesday night to disperse and initiate an unprecedented repeat election on the 17th of September. It was the first time in Israel's history, or Israeli history, that a candidate for prime minister failed to form a coalition after being given the task by the president after an election. We'll talk a little bit more about that later in the program. And on this day in 1431, Joan of Arc, condemned as a heretic, is burned at the stake in Rouen, France. And on this day in 1922, the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. is formally dedicated in a ceremony attended by then-President Warren G. Harding, Chief Justice William Howard Taft, and Robert Todd Lincoln. Quite a lineup. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Walt Disney, uh, their chief executive, Bob Iger, told Reuters uh, yesterday that it would be very difficult for the media company to keep filming in Georgia if a new abortion law takes effect because many people will not want to work in the U.S. state. Now, he's referring to the court battle that he anticipates will drag on for some time to resolve the issue. Disney has filmed blockbuster movies in Georgia, such as Black Panther and Avengers Endgame, and it would be a blow to the state's efforts to create production jobs if the entertainment giant stopped filming there. 
Georgia's Republican governor signed into law on the 7th of this month a ban on abortion after a doctor can detect a fetal heartbeat about six weeks into pregnancy before many women know that they're pregnant. The law is due to take effect on the 1st of January if it survives court challenges. Well, asked if Disney would uh, Disney rather would keep filming in Georgia, Iger said it would be very difficult to do so. I'd rather doubt we will, Iger said in an interview ahead of the dedication for the new Star Wars section of the of Disneyland. I think many people who work for us will not want to work there and we will have to heed their wishes in that regard, which is Fascinating to me that Disney would heed the wishes of their employees. Right now, we are watching it very carefully, he went on to say. If the law takes effect, I don't see how it's practical for us to continue to shoot there. Well, Georgia is one of eight states to pass anti-abortion legislation, also known as pro-life legislation this year, for the purpose of inducing the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, the 73 landmark case that established a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy. Well, the state offers a tax credit. That has lured many film and TV productions to its state. Uh, The industry is responsible for more than 92,000 jobs in Georgia, according to Motion Picture Association of America. And some 455 productions were shot in Georgia in 2018, according to the state. Some actors and producers have already said they will no longer work in Georgia because of the abortion law. But many of the large production companies have remained publicly silent on the uh, issue. On Tuesday, Netflix said the streaming service would rethink its film and television production investment in Georgia if the law goes into effect. In the meantime, Netflix will continue production there for now and work with groups that are fighting the law in U.S. courts. And again, that takes effect on the 1st of uh, January. So Netflix, along with others, will have to uh, pay to punish uh, Georgia. Uh, Kyle Smith points out that um, Hollywood is threatening to boycott Georgia, and they've done so before. When the producers of Gone with the Wind wished to hold a premiere in Atlanta, Clark Gable was outraged that black cast members would not be able to attend the event with the white cast's um, owning to Jim Crow laws then in effect. Did Gable or anyone else actually boycott the event, though? Well, no. When Hollywood's moral values collide with the dollar values, it usually is no contest. Neither Gable nor anyone else important connected with Gone with the Wind was willing to go to bat against racism if they felt it might cost them. Which was why it was so amusing when George Clooney, in accepting his 2006 Best Supporting Actor Oscar for Syriana, cited the treatment of Gone with the Wind co-star Hattie McDaniel as an example of Hollywood's courageous liberalism. He bragged that Hollywood was a little bit out of touch in that we're the ones who talked about AIDS when it was just being whispered, and we talked about civil rights when it wasn't really popular. And we, you know, we bring up subjects, we are the ones, this academy, this group of people gave Hattie McDaniel an Oscar in 1939 when blacks were still sitting in the back of theaters. Clooney's uh, either didn't know or didn't care that McDaniel was not allowed to sit in the main part of the room with the White Academy Award nominees, along with her co-stars at the time she accepted that award. Even at the Oscar ceremony itself, then held in a hotel ballroom, blacks were effectively forced to sit in the back of the theater. So much for courageous Hollywood. So will Hollywood finally deliver on its threat to boycott Georgia over politics? Netflix has become the first major studio to threaten to leave, yet Netflix is in Georgia in the first place only because of the state's ruthless capitalism, tax breaks for big businesses, and right-to-work policies. The favorite um, smash-em-up of uh, Hollywood grandstanding in the uh, economics of the campaign um, it was Will Ferrell's 2012 um, Koch Brothers movie. In the film, the nefarious capitalists 
Uh, the Mach brothers, as they were referred to in that film, are harassing the uh, rather harnessing the full power of NAFTA to outsource American jobs. The sole funny element of the movie is that it decried the Mach brothers while being made in union friendly tax refunding Louisiana. Farrell and his buddies on the left, Zach um, and uh, Adam McKay and others, outsourced the movie from California and its crushing cost structure. I suppose they could have uh, demanded the movie be made in L.A. instead of uh, Louisiana, but then it might not have gotten made money and all that. I mean, whoa, you know, um, that's how Hollywood works. Well, this is why many people are pretty skeptical that Netflix is going to boycott Georgia. Netflix is an unusual kind of Hollywood studio in that it's spending money at a rate that would make Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez blanch. But Netflix is also having one of those objects in the mirror, maybe closer than they appear moments from a Jurassic Park movie. On the left, at an AT&T Rex, a new AT&T streaming service starring its Warner um, Media properties, set to launch in the coming months. On the right, a rampaging um, Mouse Raptor, Disney's new streaming service, debuting in November and fueled by all of the Marvel and Pixar movies it's um, uh, going to chomp off of uh, Netflix. Overhead, there is the is Hulu, which Disney now owns, along with the Fox Film Studio, preparing to dominate Netflix and programming for grownups. Uh, the last thing Netflix needs to do at this point is creating problems for itself by pulling out of Georgia and forsaking all those tax subsidies that it has enjoyed and has allowed it to move uh, forward. So it's a much more complex issue than one might uh, imagine. We'll see what actually happens moving forward. First, of course, in the courts to see whether or not the... Um, the law is allowed to take effect in in Georgia or some of these other states. And then uh, by Hollywood, who has enjoyed the benefits of doing its work in Georgia. Meanwhile, a doctor in Argentina has been found guilty of failing to accomplish his duties as a public functionary after he refused to perform a legal late-term abortion on a woman who was 23 weeks pregnant. Dr. Leonardo Rodriguez Lastra. He was prosecuted in the Argentinian town of Cipolletti for obstetrical violence. Now, he refused to perform an abortion, and he's been accused of obstetrical violence. He'll be sentenced during a special hearing in the days to come by a criminal court in this, um, in this community. Well, Dr. Lastra could receive a suspended prison sentence of up to two years, meaning that if he um, once again were to refuse a legal abortion, he would immediately be sent to jail. He's also under the threat of being struck down from the register of licensed physicians, which would mean the loss of not just his job, but his work, his livelihood. He was judged on Tuesday of bearing penal responsibilities for having disregarded the law on abortion by omission. I would act the same again because no child's death is going to weigh on my conscience, he told Infobay days before the trial. He also described the horror of a late-term abortion and insisted that he would also aim to save both lives, that of the mother and that of the child. Dr. Lastra was holding his wife's hand while the verdict was read. He told the press he's still convinced that he's innocent and had not been expecting to be found guilty. He will appeal the sentence he's already in, uh, indicated. He also said in an interview after the verdict that uh, he greatly desires to speak with women in the case and uh, also has been open to that. The trial received a great deal of media attention in Argentina, where abortion remains illegal in principle, but is not punishable in so-called extreme cases, such as pregnancy resulting from rape or sexual abuse of a mentally impaired woman or danger to the life of the woman following a federal Supreme Court ruling. So it's illegal in the state except these uh, 
with these exceptions. In the province, uh, a legal protocol has uh, uh, confirmed these exceptions and provides women with a legal right to uh, obtain abortion in a public hospital when they apply. Most doctors there in the neighboring towns are conscientious objectors, however, and it may be that this doctor is uh, going to be made an example of to send a message to other doctors who um, because of their conscience, have declined or refused to perform the procedure. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, in fact, in our second hour, we're going to talk with Amy Wolf. The Lawn Signs of Hope project has uh, really spread all across the globe. And the Don't Give Up movement has been the result. We'll talk with her about that inspiring story when she joins us in our next hour. Well, as the LGBT movement continues to grow in power and influence, it started to market drag and transgender ideology to the most gullible group out there, children. Well, these efforts normalize concepts that are unscientific and that promote medical treatments that many medical professionals oppose. Take what happened recently on Mother's Day. Chips Ahoy! king of the commercialized processed cookie, tweeted an endorsement of its product by Vanessa Vangie Mateo, the name of a well-known drag queen. I'm so thankful to have a mother like mine who supports me, who loves me through all my craziness. What's sweet... um, What's a sweet gesture for you to do for your mama, your real mama, your drag mama, whichever mama, whoever you feel or consider your mama, it's their day today. Get them a cookie, Vangie Mateo said in the clip in in full drag. Well, for those unfamiliar, this individual was a star on RuPaul's Drag Race season 10 and 11, which aired on VH1. Um, She was... He was featured prominently in drag and in one episode is seen sharing a sneaky kiss with another contestant. And while the clip is clearly not an official Chips Ahoy commercial, at least it doesn't appear to be uh, given the uh, quality of the film. The brand tweeted something directly aimed at children portraying choice drag cookies and love together as one marketable package. Well, it was confusing for many children, to say the least. To clarify, the drag queens and individuals who identify as transgender are not the same. In fact, transgender advocates often oppose any correlation. RuPaul Charles, one of the most famous provocateurs who marketed uh, a drag to the masses as merely an occasion to play make-believe, said in one episode the re- of The Real, drag is really making fun of identity. We are shapeshifters. We're like, okay, today I'm this, now I'm a cowboy, now I'm this. Transgender people take identity very seriously. Their identity is who they are, end quote. While this bit of nuance is undoubtedly true, drag queens are often... Um, also gay, and because they're a penchant for dramatic dress, are placed into the same category as transgender for good reason. Many adults, and definitely even more children, don't realize the difference between the two. All children can see in this case is a person who looks like a woman but sounds like a man, encouraging them to purchase one of their favorite snacks to give um, to one of their favorite people, mom or would-be mom. Well, a Nielsen report um, backs up the marketing trend and the economic forces that are helping drive it. Nielsen called the LGBT community a significant contributor to the U.S. economy and suggested that savvy companies should plan their strategies accordingly. The report stated not only do American LGBT households make 10 percent more shopping trips in a year than the average U.S. household, they buy more at checkout. 
in aggregate, LGBT households spend an, on average $4,135 at retail stores in 2014, 7% more than non-LGBT customers. This type of spending makes LGBT customers attractive for marketing appeal across music, sports, TV, and brand sponsorship. Not only are they uh, watching and listening at higher rates than non-LGBT households, but in many cases, they're also influencing the content and character of those outlets. In other words, it's driven by economics without a consideration as to what's in the best interest of culture or children or any of those uh, things, according to the survey. Well, given those statistics, and not surprising that Chips Ahoy jumped on the bandwagon to market cookies via a drag queen. Of course, eating a cookie or giving one as a gift is certainly an age-appropriate decision that a child is capable of making. Pursuing sex reassignment, however, is not, and it is irresponsible to combine the two into one message. But cookie ads aren't the only ways kids are receiving the message. Drag Queen Storytime for Children has sprung up at local libraries nationwide, including in our community. At these gatherings, men dressed in drag read books to young children, usually books about LGBT issues, but not always. The public response has been mixed. While one drag story hour in Louisville was applauded, another in Houston was shut down due to protests. The drag trend, rather, is... Even spreading to children themselves, Desmond is Amazing is an 11-year-old drag kid, a boy who dresses as a girl. He recently posted a video with another adult drag queen in which the adult made a comment about uh, snorting ketamine, which the kid may not have even understood. Well, many organizations applauded Desmond despite his age. He's been featured on several talk shows without criticism, communicating the idea that a prepubescent boy dressed in drag is not only normal, but healthy and, in fact, cool. Even traditional kids' shows are now promoting progressive sexual ideas. Um, less shocking than Desmond, but still pushing the envelope. The cartoon show Arthur recently featured a same-sex wedding in which uh, Ratburn, author's third-grade teacher, marries another man. And one of the students then praises the union, saying, it's a brand new world like a kid would know. Well, this prompted congratulatory tweets, even from GLAD, signifying the cultural significance of such an episode. Alabama, by the way, refused to air it. The socialization and normalization of drag queens, transgender ideology, child cross-dressing is... A trend that I think many would consider dangerous. This aggressive effort to place LGBT identity and ideology in the center of American culture through television, marketing campaigns, social media, is a clear demonstration of how much they want kids to accept and embrace their thinking and even become one. The LGBT community is marketing its lifestyle to children, even as more data reveals that children who participate, particularly in transitioning from one gender to another, remain miserable. This article in the Atlantic demonstrated how much pain children go through when they try to pursue sex reassignment due to gender dysphoria rather than addressing the underlying causes of that dysphoria. There should be a clear line between adults living according to their beliefs about sexuality and gender and imposing those beliefs on children and suggesting that irreversible medical treatments are the answer. The movement doesn't seem to respect that line, but it is uh, has been blurred with some regularity and very little um, discernment. Well, when the billionaire entrepreneur Steve Jobs gave Stanford University's commencement address in June of 2005, he rallied graduates to follow their hearts. Your time is limited, he said, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. Over time, the phrase follow your heart morphed into follow your passion and then spawned countless graduation speech soundalikes. 
But according to uh, Patricia Rabin, who writes for Christianity Day Today, she points out that uh, the phrase follow your passion is bad advice for graduates. She writes, uh, or rather she quotes uh, Michael Bohanes, who says it's garbage advice. One of the great lies of life, says billionaire entrepreneur Mark Cuban. The computer scientist Cal Newport, author of So Good They Can't Ignore You, says Jobs' blissful view of life is not particularly useful, and worse, it's tautological. Hammering the nail in the coffin of Jobs' wisdom, two Stanford University researchers conducted a 2018 study not far from the stadium where Jobs gave his speech and concluded that following your passion or your heart may lead to more failure than success. Scott Galloway, a marketing professor at New York University whose subscription business L2 sold for $155 million, has for years called passion advice, well, something I wouldn't repeat, but bad advice. In a recent Time article titled Four Pieces of Advice Your Commencement Speaker Won't Tell You, he argues instead that praxis follows passion. Your job is to find something that you're good at, and after practicing and refining it, Get great at it, he writes. The emotional and economic rewards that accompany being great at something will make you passionate about whatever that something is, end quote. Well, as Christian parents, teachers, and church members watching our young people graduate and head out into the world, we have an even deeper reason to reject personal passion as a driving force. According to Scripture, our hearts make horrible compasses. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's a quote from Jeremiah 17.9. John Bloom, who's author of Don't Follow Your Heart, God's Ways Are Not Our Ways, echoes that wisdom when he writes, The truth is, no one lies to us more than our own hearts. Unaided by Christ, added Bloom, our hearts are pathologically selfish. In fact, if we do, if we do what our hearts tell us to do, we will pervert and impoverish every desire, every beauty, every person, every wonder, and every joy. If the heart is a poor compass, then what alternative guidelines can our graduates trust? Well, turn from sin is one. Yep. Yes and no. Uh, that's not your typical topic at a graduation speech. Yet your sin, says Charles Stanley, founder of In Touch Ministries, demands attention because it clouds and confuses and betrays the mind. For sound decisions about our lives, Stanley urges, ask God to show you any besetting sin and beseech him, as David did, to search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me. Even nonbelievers promote their own version of this wisdom. In his book, The Algebra of Happiness, Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning, Galloway practically begs young adults to be the adult in the room and flee alcohol and substance abuse, marry wisely, be loyal to their spouse and children, give up vain pursuits, save and compound income instead of spending it, and make other healthy choices. In Christian terms, he's inviting young people away from sinful, risky behaviors and toward human flourishing. So there you have it. Perhaps following one's bliss is not the best advice although it's the advice you're more often likely to hear. 46 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, exactly one month after the 21st Knesset was sworn in, a majority of the Knesset voted late Wednesday to disperse themselves and initiate an unprecedented repeat election on the 17th of September. It was the first time in Israeli history that a candidate for prime minister failed to form a coalition after being given the task by the president after an election. 
Well, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told the Likud faction ahead of the vote that he had not succeeded in reaching a compromise with uh, uh, leaders on the controversial ultra-Orthodox uh, conscription bill, and that he had also tried unsuccessfully to woo M- MKs from the opposition to join his government. The state of Israel is going to elections because the Likud's refusal to accept our proposal, Lieberman said, as he entered the Knesset um, plenum. This is a complete surrender of the Likud to the ultra-Orthodox. We will not be partners in a government of Jewish law. Well, tourism minister, head of the Likud negotiation team, told reporters it's over as he arrived at the uh, the meeting. Environmental protection minister Zeev Elkin said that there was uh, no choice but to hold new elections due to um, the... Uh, intransigence and refusal to accept 1,000 compromises that had been offered throughout the last week. Well, the vote taken just after the midnight deadline by which Netanyahu needed to tell President Reuven Rivlin whether he had been able to form a governing coalition was 74 to 45 in favor of dispersing. Opposition to the MKs shouted shame, shame, shame in unison ahead of that vote. The Likud initiated the bill to dissolve the Knesset rather than give Rivlin a chance to appoint someone other than Netanyahu to form a government. When presenting the bill to the Knesset, um, they said that uh, they are disappointed by the situation, but we are forced into it, admitting that the decision would be uh, would not be remembered positively in history. Well, the bottom line is exactly one month after the 21st Knesset were sworn in, a majority of that organization voted late Wednesday to disperse themselves and initiate an unprecedented repeat election on the 17th of September. Now, this is interesting because Benjamin Netanyahu barely won his reelection bid. It was very tight and controversial, as you might recall. So it will be fascinating to see what happens with the do-over. Lieutenant General Robert Ashley, who's the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, said yesterday that Russia is likely conducting low-yield nuclear weapons tests. That's an indication that Russia doesn't share the same understanding of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty that the U.S. does. Well, in the United States' understanding, the treaty prohibits any nuclear weapons experiments that produce yield. As a consequence, the United States ceased all yield-producing experiments and instead relies on computer simulations and experiments that don't produce yield. Since 1992, the U.S. has not tested a single nuclear weapon. Well, the treaty itself doesn't define what constitutes a nuclear weapons test, one of its major flaws that led to the treaty's rejection by the U.S. Senate in 1999. According to Ashley, Russia probably is not adhering to its nuclear testing moratorium in a manner consistent with the zero-yield standard either. Well, Ashley's remarks are the first U.S. government official's suggestion that Russia's nuclear warhead modernization activities are inconsistent with the U.S. understanding of that treaty. Russia's activities uh, are inconsistent with uh, that understanding of the test ban treaty, and it's been discussed previously, including the 2009 Strategic Posture Commission report and in the 2012 National Research Council report on the treaty. Well, when the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty was negotiated in the 90s, the directors of the U.S. nuclear uh, laboratories asked to be able to conduct experiments below one kiloton to ensure U.S. nuclear weapons operate as expected. The Clinton administration prohibited them from doing so, and the restriction remained in place. Well, unlike Russia and China, the United States is not building new nuclear warheads. Instead, it conducts life extension programs on existing warheads, the average age of which is almost 30 years. Well, that means that the majority of weapons scientists and engineers who actually have any experience of 
fielding new design nuclear warheads are either dead or retired or very close to it. It was also um, not until fiscal year 2016 that Congress established the Stockpile Responsiveness Program aimed at building up and exercising all capabilities uh, to conceptualize, study, design, develop, engineer, certify, produce, and deploy nuclear weapons. The Trump administration requested $34 million for the effort in fiscal year 29, or I should say 2019, the first time a substantive amount of money has been requested for that program. The United States would have uh, a lot to gain from conducting very low-yield nuclear warhead experiments. One example, it could further validate computer codes it uses to uh, make judgments about impacts of aging on nuclear warheads. It would improve the proficiency of people in charge of the U.S. nuclear warhead stockpile and increase overall flexibility and resiliency of the U.S. nuclear posture. It also potentially could lead to a better understanding of what kind of warhead modernization activities, adversaries, and competitors can do using the latest technologies and low-yield experiments. Well, the United States must uh, think long and hard about what Russia and China's nuclear warhead modernization activities mean for the long-term viability of current U.S. approaches to the maintenance of its nuclear stockpile. By not conducting any nuclear experiments, the U.S. is potentially foregoing military advantages that it now appears the Russians are not. So rather interesting to consider uh, the impact they may, that may have over time. Well, I've learned today that Promise Keepers is returning. The AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, home of the Dallas Cowboys, will host the first in quite some time Promise Keepers large event. Ken Harrison has some exciting news about what's near uh, in the near future for Promise Keepers. Um, they, he uh, says it's going to be more powerful than ever, more necessary than ever. Uh, He says, and I'm quoting, men, we have heard you. We're bringing back the signature Promise Keepers experience and so much more. There's nothing like the experience of tens of thousands of men locking arms as one, shouting and singing praises to God in a gigantic NFL stadium. And apparently that's what's going to happen. On July 31st through the 1st of August, 1 million, uh, or I should say August 1st, 2020, a projected 80,000 men will join together to raise the roof at the AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, home of the Cowboys. We will also simulcast, he says, the event to a projected 5 million men, spreading the impact far across our nation and the world, urging men to mark their calendars. Can you imagine, he goes on to say, what would happen if the men of America stepped forward and truly lived out their responsibilities before God? Can you imagine the sea change we would witness across our nation? For too long, he says, society has pushed men to be passive and feminized. We are told we're toxic. Men are taught to sit by and do nothing while our families crumble around us. But the Bible has something else to say. And he quotes the Apostle Paul. That's why our next event will feature speakers who will preach from the word of God and inspire men to take up their responsibilities as servant kings and goes on from there. (coughs) Again, the announcement that in July of um, 2020, The 31st through August the 1st, Promise Keepers is uh, returning, and that will be in um, Arlington, Texas at the AT&T Stadium. Now, I wonder if this will resonate with the newer generation of men. It certainly was popular a decade or so ago, but we wonder if that will be the case with uh, younger men, millennials and uh, and the like. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, as the season approaches. I want to remind you that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we're looking forward to a conversation with Amy Wolf. She is the originator of the Lawn Signs of Hope Project. 
didn't start out with a formal moniker like that, but it certainly has had an impact beginning in Newburgh, then across the state of Oregon and across the country. It's now in many countries and several languages making an impact. So we'll talk with Amy about that. She's a mom um, and lives in Newburgh and just simply wanted to respond to a concern she had and wanted to, as she puts it, do something. We'll talk about what she did and maybe you'll be inspired to do what's on your heart as well. So looking forward to that. Well, sometime around A.D. 60, in the age of Emperor Nero, a Roman court insider named Gaius Petronius, wrote a satirical Latin novel, The Satyricon, about moral corruption in imperial Rome. The novel's general landscape was Rome's transition from an agrarian republic to a globalized multicultural superpower. The novel survives only in a series of extended fragments. But there are enough chapters for critics to agree that the high-living Petronius, nicknamed the Judge of Elegance, was a brilliant cynic. He often mocked the cultural consequences of the sudden and disruptive influx of money and strangers from elsewhere in the Mediterranean region into a once-traditional Roman society. Certain themes in Satyricon are timeless and still resonate today. Victor Davis Hansen, in fact, points out that there are similarities between declining Rome and the modern U.S. We'll talk a bit about that when we return after news and traffic here at the top of the hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, six minutes after five o'clock. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. Looking forward to a conversation with Amy Wolf. She's going to be with us in our next two segments. Just a remarkable young woman who decided she wanted to do something about Um, An issue in her community, and it's, to use a modern term, it's gone viral in the best possible sense of the concept. We'll talk with Amy coming up in our next segment. I was sharing with you a a column by Victor Davis Hanson making the point that there are similarities between the declining of Rome and modern United States, and he makes uh, an observation on the satirical Latin novel that was written by Gaius Petronius, uh, called the Satyricon. We don't have it in its entirety, but enough to uh, have an understanding of its point. He points out that the novel plots the wandering odyssey of three lazy, overeducated, and mostly underemployed single young Greeks. Uh, they aimlessly mosey around southern Italy. They panhandle. They mooch off the uh, nouveau riche. They mock traditional Roman customs. Uh, the three and their friends live it up uh, amid the culinary, cultural, and sexual excesses in the age of Nero. Certain themes in the, the Satyricon are timeless and still resonate today, certainly in the 21st century. Well, Victor Davis Hansen writes, The abrupt transition from a society of rural homesteaders into metropolitan coastal hubs had created two Romes. One world was a sophisticated and cosmopolitan network of traders, schemers, investors, academics, deep state imperial cronies. Their seaside corridors were um, not so much Roman as Mediterranean, and they saw themselves more as citizens of the world than as mere Roman citizens. In the novel, vast, unprecedented wealth had produced license. On the make, uh, urbanites suck up and flatter the childless rich in hopes of being given estates rather than earning their own money. The rich, in turn, exploit the young sexually and emotionally by offering them false hopes of landing an inheritance. Petronius seems to mock the very world in which he indulged. His novels accepted norms are pornography, gratuitous violence, sexual promiscuity, transgenderism, delayed marriage, childlessness, fear of aging, homelessness, social climbing, 
ostentatious materialism, prolonged adolescence, and scamming and conning in lieu of working. The characters are fixated on expensive fashion, exotic foods, pretentious name-dropping. They're the lucky inheritors of a dynamic Roman infrastructure that had globalized three continents. Rome had incorporated the shore of the Mediterranean under uniform law, science, institutions, all kept in check by Roman bureaucracy and the overwhelming power of the legions, many of them populated by non-Romans. Never in the history of civilization had a generation become so wealthy and leisured, so eager to gratify every conceivable appetite and yet so bored and unhappy. (coughs) But there was also a second Rome in the shadows. Occasionally, the hipster... Anti-heroes of the novel bump into old-fashioned rustics, shopkeepers, legionnaires. They're what we might call the ridicule deplorables and clingers. Even Petronius suggests that these rougher sorts built and maintained the vast Roman Empire. They are caricatured as bumpkins and yet admired as simple, sturdy folk without the pretensions and decadence of the novel's urban drones. Petronius is too skilled and satirist to paint a black and white picture of good old traditional Romans versus their corrupt urban successors, his point is subtler. Globalization had enriched and united non-Romans into a world culture. That was an admirable feat. But such homogenization also attenuated the very customs, traditions, and values that had led to such astounding Roman success in the first place. The multiculturalism, urbanism, cosmopolitanism of the Satyricon reflected an exciting Roman mishmash of diverse language, habit, lifestyle drawn from Northern and Western Europe, Asia, and Africa. But the new empire also diluted a noble and unique Roman agrarianism. It eroded nationalism and patriotism. The empire's wealth, size, and lack of cohesion ultimately diminished Roman unity, as well as traditional marriage, childbearing, and autonomy. Education, likewise, was seen as ambiguous. In the novel, wide reading ensures erudition and sophistication and helps science supplant superstition. But sometimes education is also ambiguous. Students become idle, pretentious loafers. Professors are no different from loud um, pedants. Writers uh, are trite and boring. Elite pundits sound like gas bags. Petronius seems to imply that whatever the Rome of his time was, it was likely not sustainable but would at least be quite uh, exciting in its splendid decline. Petronius also argues that with too much rapid material progress comes moral regress. His final warnings might be especially troubling for the current generation of Western Europeans and Americans, even as we brag of globalization or globalizing the world and enriching the West materially and culturally, we are losing our soul in the process. Getting married, raising families, staying in one place, still working with our hands and Positioning or postponing gratification may be seen as boring and out of date, but nearly 2,000 years later, all of that is what still keeps civilization alive. It made me want to go back and uh, revisit um, the Satyricon and the writings of Gaius Petronius, who wrote the satirical Latin novel uh, by that name about the moral corruption in Imperial Rome, because there is much to be uh, recognized from our own age in perhaps imperial, um, the imperial West. Well, almost everyone has an eerie tale to tell. Perhaps you've been uh, talking to a friend about an island vacation when suddenly deals for the Maldives or Hawaii pop up on your Facebook feed. Or you're talking to a co-worker about yard renovations when advertisements for lawnmowers litter your Twitter account. Or maybe 
You were talking about why you stopped drinking and a random sponsored article about the growing trend of elective sobriety is suddenly in front of your eyes. Is it creepy? Is it coincidence? Was your smartphone eavesdropping on your conversation? Well, it's easy to feel like your phone is spying on you. It is actually spying on you, but it is eavesdropping. Hmm. Alex Hammerstone, government risk and compliance practice lead at Information Technology Security Forum Trusted Sec, uh, says via email that the reason the reason why we see ads pop up that seem to correlate to the exact thing we were just talking about is because technology and marketing companies gather extensive amounts of personal and behavioral data on us. But it's not from eavesdropping. It's from surfing the web, shopping, posting on social media and other things people do online. Well, Hammerstone stressed that there are simply huge databases about individuals and also about larger behavioral patterns that play with our psyche. For instance, people who search online for mortgages and also for vacations tend to have a baby within nine months. So if an advertiser sees the first two indicators pop up for a particular user, they'll start delivering them ads on baby products. This is nothing to do with eavesdropping, but from regular data collection of online activity and correlating that with established behavioral patterns, he says. And the reason that Ads appear to um, appear so on the mark and targeted are twofold. First, it is psychological that you focus on the super targeted ads, similar to how to, to a fortune teller works. Um, they'll make uh, 10 statements and one is correct. And that's the only one that we remember. Similarly, if you uh, mention to your friends that you've been, um, for example, wa- uh, wanting a bike and a bike and and uh, suddenly pop uh, pops up on your um, feed, you may be startled by the bike ad and think your phone is listening. But ignore the fact that you also got 20 ads for something you never want to buy or even consider, Hammerstone says. So it's an interesting formula that he suggests is at least a partial explanation as to why there seems to be so much correlation with what we are thinking about, talking about, uh, pursuing, and what suddenly appears uh, on our social media or other Uh, sites we may be perusing. So is your cell phone eavesdropping? He says, not really. Up next, we're going to talk with um, Amy Wolf. I hope you'll stick around. It's a great conversation about a woman who just wanted to make a difference and did far beyond what she ever imagined possible. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And I'm so excited because I have a friend in studio. Amy Wolf is joining me. Now, just to tell you who she is, she's a George Fox University alumni. She is a speaker coach at uh, Distinction Communication, Inc., along with her dad. She also is a TEDx a speaker coach for uh, TEDx Portland. Is that the right way to say that? Is it yeah. TEDx Portland? Yes. Uh, anyway, so she's uh, she's been around in the, our community for some time, and I'm just delighted to um, introduce her and to talk to her about a project that she began that initially she thought, no, this may not be a great idea. <laughs> and it's ended up having a significant impact all around the world. So first, let me just say, welcome, Amy. I sure appreciate your coming in today. Oh, thank you for having me. There is an interesting story about how we met many years ago. Yeah. In fact, you mentioned that before our conversation officially began. So I'm sitting at the end of my seat to hear the rest of this one. Well, I think you were speaking at George Fox University when I was a student. So Mm -hmm. that must have been 2005-ish. And I remember I heard you speak and I came up to you afterwards. You were so approachable. And I said, I feel like part of my story 
and how God will use some of my testimony and suffering and life experiences will be becoming an inspirational speaker like you. And all I remember you saying is you weren't quick to brush me off or move on to talk to someone else, but you, I remember you just being so positive, like a, just a cheerleader and awesome. That's going to be awesome. Go for it. And I, I remember that really brief encounter from so long ago. And what's interesting is it's been fulfilled in totally different ways than I thought it would look like, but a really, really cool how that dream has been fulfilled. And you were one moment cheerleading, just cheering me on. And oh, I, I thought you should know that. <laughs> well, I appreciate knowing that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting how God uses just these little brief encounters to encourage um, us and uh, I'm grateful to be a small part of your big story. So <laughs> thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thanks for really encouraging appreciate me. it. Well, Amy, you um, were responding to an issue in your community. You live in the Newburgh area. And there had been, as we've seen across the country, um, a number of suicides among young people. And while most of us might have said, oh, this is just tragic, uh, we want to do something about it. We don't quite know what to do. You decided, well, I am going to do something about it. But you weren't convinced, at least initially, that it was the right thing to do. Tell us the start of the story that has taken your inspiration, taken you essentially around the world. Yeah, it started in May 2017. We are part of a church small group of four families, young kids running around screaming. And every week we promise we're going to find a babysitter and we never do. <laughs> We've been together for seven years. Some of us have traveled to Africa together, just a really small group of friends that meet regularly. So one night we're meeting together and one of the friends is a teacher in the Newburgh school district and told us about the suicide rates that he had learned of in our community. And I was just uh, baffled. I don't even remember the number. I just remember the feeling of feeling like I was knocked over. Mm. I am a doer. Uh, if anyone knows me well, I'm just, I, what are we going to do about it? And I thought, what do you do if you're not a, a Therapist, what do you do if you're not in the school district? What do you do if you're a young mom who travels often for her job, already volunteers, is already busy? Like, what do you do? And I had had this idea of yard signs for years after reading Bob Goff's book, Love Does. Have you yes, read it? Yes. Yeah. So I read that book. And while I did, I was thinking extravagant love to strangers. What would that look like? And I just had this random idea of these yard signs that would say positive things. Well, every couple months, I would think about those signs and just think, that's weird. <laughs> that is just too weird. But in May of 2017, that night at small group, I thought my something I can do is I can just go print those signs finally after so many years of just thinking about it. So I contacted a friend who is a graphic designer. I said, do you have access to cheap signs? They're expensive. And so she did. She designed some signs for us. Jake and I, one Saturday morning with our girls, went out to stake these signs anonymously around Newburgh, particularly in yards around the high school. We knocked on strangers' doors, showed them the sign, no website, no hashtag, no strings attached, not a church, not an agenda, just a family trying to do something. They did not hesitate. And there were some doors I knocked on. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what they're going to respond. And they were so willing to, to allow us to put these words in their yards. Uh, the promise was that we would come and collect them after two weeks. It wasn't a forever promise. Yeah, yeah. But I remember two weeks later, we went and picked up signs. And I had one of the families find us on Facebook and message me and say, we didn't realize that when you put the sign out in our yard for other people, that 
it would become a really important message for our family in our house. Can you come back and put the sign out? <laughs> we need this hope. We need the encouragement that we didn't know we needed at the time. And so, of course, drove back out, stuck back the sign in their yard. Uh, but within a few days, well, a few hours of staking the signs, I started getting seeing activity on Facebook in our community. We have a community page. Where are these signs from? And people wanted signs in their yards. Yeah. In fact, you started with, what, about 20 yeah. signs? And then you started getting calls. We want signs yep. in our yard. We want signs in yeah. our business. And you ended up having to print significantly more yeah. than your initial run. I think in the first week, we had printed 150 signs or ordered them. And then it was a logistical nightmare of, I got a message on Facebook, but then I got a message on Instagram, but then I got an email. And how do I go back to these people? And and so it quickly we realized if this is going to continue, even just for a week, we got to organize. Mm-hmm. So we made a website, got a bank account. Uh, we we did some things to set us up and then another month and then another month. And then it starts to get outside of Oregon real quick. And then we realize this is a thing. Like we started a thing. I remember calling a friend, my friend Vanjie, I was panicking. Is this, are we a business? Are we a movement? Are we a nonprofit? What is it? What are we? <laughs> and we decided to just stay a movement for a year and a half. And as momentum has picked up, uh, we have decided we became a legal 501c3 nonprofit organization. Thanks to Lane Powell, attorney from downtown, did it pro bono for us some of the work. Because we sell all of our goods at cost. We make no money. We have no margin for overhead. A few pennies here and there to help cover some expenses, which might have to change as we scale But that's the mission of the organization is that we provide tokens of love and hope through yard signs, wristbands, stickers, car decals, pins, all sorts of things. We provide it at cost so that people can spread hope and love. Let's talk about the message itself because there are a number of very brief statements that are being made but are having a significant impact on the hearts of those who either display the signs or the other paraphernalia or are reading them in passing. What What are you saying? Well, the messages have, the signs are all say, don't give up on the back. And the fronts have different messages like, you matter. You are worthy of love. It's not too late. You are not alone. One day at a time. Sure, you are enough. And then we have with them in Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, one of the signs in Spanish. And it's it's amazing how that positive affirmation gives a glimmer of hope to someone who might be on the edge. Now, you were inspired by the rate of suicides among teenagers Mm -hmm. and even younger Mm -hmm. kids for that matter. But this has really resonated in the hearts of everybody, teenagers as well as their parents and grandparents and families and so on. Yeah. I, you know, what's interesting is the movement really is so organic. And part of that is we were motivated by response uh, to the suicide rates, but these messages are really for anywhere, anyone experiencing anything that feels discouraging or overwhelming. So I get messages from people um, who have lost a loved one, who are struggling with addiction, who uh, are finding their marriage to be difficult and they're trying to grow some resilience. And these signs don't give up or really significant to them. People who uh, feel there's a gal saying her mom in a nursing home, feeling like no one cares and they feel kind of invisible to the community and how 
she decided to make everyone cheer everyone up. She was going to pass out these cards to the residents in the home with her, you know, to all sorts of different walks of life and in all sorts of suffering and all sorts of different struggles. Um, a woman seeing a sign of you are worthy of love in her neighbor's yard. And she was trying to figure out how to leave an abusive relationship. And so the beauty of the messages is that they are so simple that through whatever the lens of suffering we're experiencing, people are claiming the hope for themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful and and really powerful. Now, it's interesting. Many of us have had a moment's inspiration. We'll see something happen. Maybe there's a need that we've identified. And we've thought to ourselves, I'd like to do something about that. And maybe even a creative idea pops in our head. But for most of us, it's a fleeting thought. It's something that never comes to fruition. And yet you, after pondering it for some time, decided, I'm actually going to do something. Now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about the the step from, oh, this is probably a really bad idea, to actually calling a graphic designer friend and putting these signs in yards that have now spread across the globe. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're talking with Amy Wolf. She's a pretty incredible woman of vision who just decided she wanted to do something, and God gave her a creative idea, and it's made a difference, not only in her community in the Newburgh area, not only in our state, but all across this country and in places around the world she'll probably never visit. We'll be back in a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. If you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I am happily continuing my conversation with Amy Wolf. She is a mom. She's a George Fox University alum. She's a speaker coach at Distinction Communication. She does TEDx speaker coaching for TEDx Portland. Uh, she also is the originator of the uh, Lawn Signs of Hope project and Don't Give Up uh, movement, which has uh, really been a surprise to you as yes. much as, uh, as anybody. <laughs> now, just before the break, I was mentioning that for many of us, we have a, an idea that might pop in our head, but we never go any further than, mm-hmm. oh, that would be kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. What do you think made the difference for you in thinking of the possibility of developing this project to actually doing it? Yeah, I think that's a good question. It makes, I don't know the answer to that other than I'm really wired towards action. What are we going to do? What are we going to do about it? When our small group talks about um, different issues and challenges in our culture, my question is, well, let's volunteer. How can we do something? If I were to go back into my life of where that came from, when I was 14, I my brother, Jeremy, passed away. It was a tragic event at a local lake, and I witnessed his drowning And when I was 14, Jeremy died when he was 18. I remember thinking to myself, well, a few things. Is God there? Is God there and mean? Or is God there and sovereign? Right? So I had some big things to sort out when I was young. But one of the things that was laid upon my heart was I got to make my life matter. I don't know if I have 18 years or 88 years. And that was so clear to me at such a young age. So I think that's what kind of propels me when I see these needs is what can I do? I just, I got to make myself matter. I can't get too busy. I can't call myself too busy. I mean, I have a capacity and it has been stretched, (laughs) but I think that's part of what motivated me to take action is just this constant drive to, I don't know how much time I have and I've got to make it count. You know, that's interesting. I was 14. My brother was 16 when he drowned. My experience is very similar to yours in that it instilled in me this sense of um, you don't have any idea how long you will be on right. this earth. So you have to make the most of the time that you have. That's so interesting to me. Now, as a Christian woman, some might question, 
why isn't there a John 316 in the lower left-hand corner? Why isn't the name of Jesus emblazoned on these signs? And I love the way in the article that John Fortmeyer published in Christian News Northwest, the way you responded to that challenge, because um, I'm sure some of our listeners are wondering why that is not the case. Well, about a month and a half into the movement, I thought, this is really, my daughters are watching this happen. And this is good conversation. Avery was seven at the time. So I said, Avery, what would you put on a sign? And she said, well, I would put God loves you on a sign. Which, as a mama, I was like, she knows. (laughs) Yes. She knows where her surest hope is. And that's in a God who loves her. Yes, mama win. (laughs) And so I looked at her in her beautiful green eyes. And I said, Avery, I can't do that. And she went, mom. Why not? I said, I know. I know. It's so confusing. I think because the movement started to to spread messages of hope to anyone, anywhere, that as soon as there became an attachment to some faith or a church or a faith message, that there would be a majority of people who would then tune out the message, even if it would help them. Oh, it's a faith message. Oh, it must be a church thing. And there's a string attached to right. that. Right. And mm-hmm. that means, you know, it's a recruiting tool. Or whatever it might be. And I just knew that the intention of the movement was everyone everywhere, no matter what. And so what's been very difficult, because I'm a black and white thinker and I'm a make life matter. And if Mm -hmm. Jesus is the surest hope, you better believe I'm having a hard time not putting it on a yard sign. But it has been confirmed over the last two years that this is the right direction. We've had to make some really difficult decisions on keeping faith out of the movement when we've had some partnership proposals come up. But we really wanted to keep it simple. And it's something I wrestled with up until probably the last year. And then I realized people are, churches are using the signs. Um, People can read through it. I've had a few messages. Are you a believer? (laughs) So some people can see the hope that that shines through them. But yeah, we've made a very conscious decision not to make them faithful. I love what uh, John Fortmeyer wrote, uh, quoting you loosely. The signs are meant to serve as a first step in opening up communication and consideration about basic ideas of love, hope, and acceptance. And then uh, you say that yard sides don't effectively spread Mm. the gospel we do. It certainly is a conversation <laughs> starter. It's an opportunity to consider where does that worthiness that the sign suggests I have, where does that come That's from? Right. And so we don't have to be as explicit in every conversation, you know, in print That's right. as one might imagine in order for an individual who truly has a broken and open heart might ultimately find Jesus. So I, I appreciated your response to that. Uh, let's talk about what's happened since this Simple project in Newburgh. I mean, it's a small town in Oregon. It's a beautiful small town. It's a beautiful small (laughs) town. In fact, it's one of my favorite towns in Oregon, but that's a whole other subject. This small town in Oregon has somehow spread across the globe. In fact, in the article, uh, hope is spread to all 50 states, 22 nations, and 10 languages. How does that happen? That is a good question. (laughs) I'm still scratching my head. Well, we don't ship internationally. So anytime they've traveled, it's been in suitcases. So we've had, I had a friend go with a medical team to Nicaragua and said, hey, can we get wristbands in Spanish? So we printed a couple hundred custom wristbands for her. My mom went to Zambia last summer. Hey, can we get a thousand in a small uh, village in the, I think the language was Mame, Mame. And then I would have people traveling through Europe and say, hey, 
give me a stack of cards. I'll leave them all over. And then I'm getting pictures of the London Bridge with a don't give up card on it. And in Edinburgh, Scotland, you know, a don't give up card in a restaurant. I'm thinking, what is this? (laughs) And so they've traveled to now 26 countries and often in different languages, people choosing to travel with hope in their back pocket, waiting for encounters waiting for the right place at the right time. Maybe it's setting it down on a public bench. Maybe it's because of an interaction with your waiter, whatever it might be. People are finding that it's an exciting thing to bring with them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, if the heavens can declare the glory of God, Mm -hmm. then surely a a, a sign, a wristband that declares, um, you know, Imago Dei, the image of God in people in a very creative way can lead them ultimately to the conclusion that there is a God who loves me through encounters with other believers. So it's exciting to consider that. Now, my my understanding is this has also gone viral recently, and you've been getting calls from uh, Fox News, Washington Post. uh, Tell us a little bit about um, how that happened and what you're doing. Yes. A dad in Seattle, a stay-at-home dad in Seattle, reached out to us about a month ago and said, we want to order some signs. We heard about what you're doing through an organization called Mission Increase Foundation. Mm -hmm. And he had met a guy named Kevin that I know well. And he, I said, I heard about your move. I want to buy some signs. Great. Sent him some signs. He purchased some signs. And then he said, man, I need some more. Okay. And then he emailed me and said, I have a media interview and I don't, do you have any tips? What do you say? Have you done this before? And I said, that's awesome. Gave him some tips. And he got, he got uh, spotlighted on the local news. The national affiliate picked it up. I think it was CNN first, maybe, I don't know, CNN, and then Yahoo Lifestyle covered it, and that article went viral. And so he called me in a panic. He said, I know you're on a family vacation and trying to unplug, but I need your help. Something's happening. <laughs> and I didn't know what was going on. We we were in Maui last week, and I just was not going to work. Uh, but then I got a message from a friend who was helping with the movement in my absence, and she said, we're bombarded. We have hundreds of orders. You're running out of product. I went, what? I opened my emails. Oh no. Oh my gosh. What happened? So it started with his article and then I started getting media requests just simply because when people went through his story, he was so kind to make sure to throw us some credit of it is not ours. Mm -hmm. It is this talk to Amy. And so then I started getting requests for quotes and now for our own highlighting of the movement and the origins and the impact so it's been a wild, I've been home for 48 hours and it's been insane. That's just incredible. So it starts with an idea, kind of a passing idea yep. at that, wanting to do something um, and then thinking, well, that's not a, that's not a good idea, no. <laughs> but then pondering it for a season and then ultimately contacting a friend, you make the signs and what was a very simple gesture has now impacted the world, and you're on a whirlwind media I am. <laughs> uh, tour as a, as a result. I think it's an encouragement for the rest of us who might consider that God is nudging them to do something that seems a bit unusual. We can't imagine how that could be useful to the kingdom. We don't know how God might use us. And yet, in these creative, unassuming ways, um, God has given you a platform um, to declare the value that each of us have because of uh, our Creator and um, what a what a tremendous inspiration and encouragement. Thank you. If I had to encourage people listening, it would be, you know, we're there. There's always going to be people we think are more qualified to help. Mm-hmm. And we're always going to be in a situation where we feel like oh, I'm too broken to help other people or I'm going through my own junk or fill in the blank. And I would just say I am not perfect. 
and I have my own broke, brokenness. Let's not wait. Let's not wait for someone more qualified, more put together, more resources, more whatever. But when we see a need, that with whatever's our capacity, we try to meet that need and respond in kindness and hope always to other people. And I love your initial response when you learned about the suicide rate among young people. We got to do something. Yeah. And it starts there. There's an open heart and it's a pliable heart and God can use that. You can just drop a little inspiration and it may seem a bit peculiar, a little unusual, unlikely to have much of an impact. And yet your story tells us otherwise. So I want to encourage anyone listening because the truth is all of us are broken. We're just broken in That's different right. ways. So if we wait till we're all whole, then nothing will ever be accomplished. But, um, you know, ask the Lord, what would you have me do? And then don't shrink back from an idea that might be a little bit different than you might imagine and just stand back and look and see what God might do. Well, Amy, I want to thank you for following through with your heart's um, desire to do something and for ministering to so many people in such a simple way. And we will never know, I suppose, this side of heaven, how that inspiration saved lives. And I know you know many stories and I wish we had more time to talk about them uh, but the impact that uh, that this uh, campaign is having and has had, what a great inspiration. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Didn't you love Amy? That was really fun to, uh, to catch up with her. Well, this is our final segment of today's program. And this being Thursday, I want to remind you that tomorrow being Friday, we're going to Take a look at the lighter side of the news. And, oh, I'm looking forward to that. Hope you plan to join us. Also wanted to let you know the Louisiana House of Representatives yesterday passed by a vote of 79 to 23, a heartbeat bill that's going to prohibit abortions after an unborn baby's heartbeat is detectable in the womb, which is uh, usually as early as six weeks of pregnancy. Now, this is very similar to what we're seeing in other states. And part of this movement, whether or not that was the prime uh, motivation or not, that may ultimately lead to the U.S. Supreme Court revisiting the question of abortion on demand. Senator John Milkovich, a Democrat, sponsored the bill, Senate Bill 184. It requires an ultrasound to be conducted prior to any abortion procedure. If a fetal heartbeat is detected, the bill bans abortion unless, under penalty of perjury, the abortion provider declares the procedure necessary. And this is the language, I'm quoting, to prevent the death of the pregnant woman or to prevent a serious risk of the substantial and irreversible impairment of a major bodily function of the pregnant woman. Now, it's this explicit because the um, the word health has been so broadly interpreted that uh, it would virtually provide for an abortion under any circumstance. And so they wanted to be very explicit about what um, exceptions were in place. Well, the bill also includes an exemption in the case that a physician certifies that the unborn child has a profound and irredeemable uh, congenital or chromosomal anomaly that is incompatible with sustaining life after birth. So this would not include, for example, uh, someone who has Down syndrome because um, uh, having a sustaining life after birth would uh, would not be in question. Well, the House rejected an amendment that would have provided an exception to the bill for rape and incest. Doctors breaking the law could face up to two years in prison and lose their medical license. Well, in a statement that was posted on Twitter shortly after the vote, Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards wrote, As I prepare to sign this bill, I call on the overwhelming bipartisan majority of legislators who voted for it to join me in continuing to build a better Louisiana that cares for the least among us and provides more opportunity for everyone. So the uh, trend is continuing. And now added to that growing list is Louisiana that has chosen to protect 
the unborn. Now, this, as I mentioned earlier in the program, that in Georgia, there are significant threats to um, the movie industry abandoning the state, and they've uh, thrived in the state of Georgia. They've made accommodations so that it's cost-effective and so on, uh, if the law goes into effect. So this is going to be a challenge, at least in Georgia, if not elsewhere, uh, to weighing out is the economic benefit of having movies made here if they follow through with this threat. Uh, Does it outweigh the value of the life of the unborn? And so that drama is unfolding uh, in that area. Also, we have been witnessing powerful storms and tornadoes. They've been hitting central and midwestern areas of the country very hard. The severe weather has brought devastation in many communities. And I wanted to let you know that one of the options available to you, if you'd like to respond, is Samaritan's Purse. They've uh, deployed their disaster relief units to help storm victims in hard areas um, hit, uh, for example, Michigan, Missouri, Ohio and Oklahoma. They apparently have staff and volunteers that are going to be helping homeowners sharing the love of Christ in the midst of all of that. You can learn more about the ministry and their U.S. disaster relief efforts. I know there are lots of uh, opportunities and options available. Samaritan's Purse is one of them. And this, of course, is um, the ministry of uh, Franklin Graham, who is the uh, uh, the son of the late Billy Graham. Again, to learn more about the ministry and their U.S. disaster relief efforts, you can go to their webpage, SamaritansPurse.org, uh, and uh, there's more information about how you can help uh, those who are struggling. Um, also, I wanted to mention tonight is the uh, Palau Association's Show and Tell. Uh, Show and Tell is finally here, and the question is whether or not you're going to come. I'm so disappointed I'm not going to be there. I have a rehearsal for a graduation that's taking place tomorrow, but it all starts tonight at 7 o'clock p.m. at Cedar Mill Bible Church. If you're already registered, that's great. They'll see you there. If you haven't made plans, you can just show up, and they'd love to have you as well. So if you've been going back and forth as to whether or not you can attend or whether or not you want to attend. It's a relatively short event. It's from 7 to 8.30. Uh, It's a free TED Talk style event that's going to include powerful testimonies from new believers here in Portland, practical teaching from nationally known leaders like Mike, uh, or rather Mark Middleberg, Shayla Visser, and Greg Steyer. It's uh, going to be a great evening. They want to pack out Cedar Mill Bible Church, not just for the... uh, Uh, the ability to say, look what we did, but because it means those of us who really want to show our faith, but also talk about it in a constructive way right here in our community, will be encouraged by the stories of new believers from our community, as well as those who can help us learn how in the regular course of walking through life, we can make our faith relevant. It doesn't have to be awkward. It doesn't have to be uh, untimely. It can be just a natural course of relating to people that God has put in our circle of influence. Uh, They're also going to be celebrating the release of Luis Palau's latest book, his best by far, according to uh, his son. In fact, we talked with uh, with him here in the studio just recently, and um, I I was so touched by how Kevin um, referred to the book and how meaningful it has uh, been to him and his family. You're also going to be able to get a copy of the book. Uh, It's scheduled to be released on the 4th of June. You can greet uh, Luis Palau in person. I believe he's going to be signing books as well. So all of that starting at 7 o'clock p.m. this evening at Cedar Mill Bible Church. Well, I want to thank James Blind for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. Thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day, and have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show. 
and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.